And now, a word from our sponsor. When were two people ever so sure they were just born to live with each other? We can't fail to find happiness together in this wonderful world of today and tomorrow. About six months after college, I got married, and a year and a half, two years later, I had, had children and lived a very uh, married life. All right. And when my children got into school and into public school, I became active in, in, in the public schools. I got active in the PTA, I ran the book sale, I became the president and all that, and then met a woman and her family. We became very close. We would spend weekends out in Fire Isle, and men would come out weekends, and we would spend the week together. And in the course of the week when the husbands weren't there, um, I kind of came on to her. And she said no, she'd been there and she'd done that and she didn't want to jeopardize her marriage. And um, I just tucked it back under. And I tucked it back under for probably another 10 years. It's easy to imagine the 1950s and 1960s as a closeted era, a lonely era, an era when women who desired other women suffered silently in heterosexual marriages. You know, my whole family had always been very traditional. Um, I used, I, it was a long marriage too. Um, and I felt that I owed that to my husband and my, I, we did have two children. My mother had soldiered on through difficult times. Her mother <laughs> had soldiered on. I thought that was how one carried the flag for womanhood. You, you had to do these things. Um, but it was bewildering. In the decades after World War II, some married women had passionate sexual and romantic relationships with other women. They found each other in suburban neighborhoods, in urban apartment buildings, at church retreats, and at PTA meetings. Some of these women rightly feared that their husbands would discover their relationship. Yet far more often, husbands turned a blind eye to their wives' affairs, choosing to keep up appearances rather than face the stigma of divorce. In her groundbreaking new book, Her Neighbor's Wife, Sexing History co-host Lauren Gutterman uncovers this hidden history of lesbian desire within marriage. Her Neighbor's Wife shares the stories of hundreds of women who balanced marriage and same-sex desire in the decades following World War II. Each chapter offers a fascinating look at a world in which traditional marriage allowed for lesbian desire to exist and sometimes to thrive. She touched my shoulder with her tongue, lying next to me, remembering the movie and laughing about it. It touched me so gently along my leg, kissed me. It was wonderful. Published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, Her Neighbor's Wife is available for pre-order on www.sexinghistory.com. Her Neighbor's Wife by Lauren Gutterman. Order your copy today. Now, back to our program. It could happen anywhere. It doesn't necessarily have to be this type of an area. It could be downtown. It could be in the financial district. It, it could be um, out in strictly a residential area. Anyone, anywhere, they could be the target of a rapist. 
What you must do is be aware of where you are, be aware of who you're with, the whole circumstances, your whole environment, just totally be aware. The sex offender today has a greater number of available women to choose from. There are more working women, single women living alone, not with their families or with men. She has the means and ability to go anywhere at any time. Because of the mobility and the visibility of today's woman, she must learn to understand the rapist. Most of the cases that come across our desk are textbook in its nature. The type of assault is consistent with those assaults we've seen in the past. For today's woman to understand the rapist, she's got to learn to understand the man. The audio you just heard comes from a 1973 documentary film about rape in which police detectives and sexual assault survivors talked about how women could learn to protect themselves from violent predators. This film reflects how, in the 1960s and early 1970s, many Americans portrayed rape as a rare and violent act perpetrated by outsiders and sociopaths. During these same years, popular culture, from Hollywood movies to dating advice literature, taught men that women needed to be tricked or coerced into sex. Many men learned that overcoming or ignoring women's objections was part and parcel of virile, healthy masculinity. For example, the psychologist Dr. Albert Ellis advised readers that foreplay should make it impossible for a woman to say no to sex. In his 1963 bestseller, Sex and the Single Man, he told men to dominate women. Show her that you are determined to have her as nude as possible, even though you are not literally going to rip the clothes off her back and begin to rape her. Popular advice to women about heterosexual sex, however, was filled with contradictions. Dating advice literature told girls that it was their job to politely set boundaries with sexually aggressive boys. We can see this in a 1951 film made for high schoolers called How to Say No, Moral Maturity. Well, what about the problem of, of boys? Their, well, their hands, you know. I've run into problems like this a lot. You get home from a date, and it's still early enough to stay outside for a while to talk. Some talk. It's a funny thing. This boy has probably been good company on the date. But just give him half a chance alone, and there's just no stopping him. A decade and a half later, author Evelyn Bourne had this advice for women in her 1965 advice book, Anatomy of a Love Affair. If you can't talk yourself out of his pass, try crying. Only a beast can resist a woman's tears. And if he's a beast, relax and enjoy it. All it means is you'll be seduced a few days or weeks earlier than you had intended. And since you had planned to be anyway, don't quibble. The combined effect of this advice was to make male sexual aggression seem natural and predetermined. The normalization of male sexual aggressiveness both promoted and obscured the routine sexual violence that men perpetrated against women. What's more, men seldom face legal or social consequences for sexual harassment or assault. Feminists of the 1960s and 70s made the defense of women from sexual aggression a cornerstone of their activism. As these activists developed a critique of patriarchy, they began to analyze the causes and effects of sexual violence. Susan Brown Miller's 1975 book, Against Our Will, played an outsized role in popularizing and crystallizing these feminist conversations. 
in extensive detail and across 472 pages, Brownmiller underlined that rape was neither the deranged act of a pathological individual nor the natural outcome of men's biological drives. Rather, against our will showed sexual violence to be a systemic, pervasive, and culturally sanctioned act of power and intimidation. In Brownmiller's memorable formulation, rape was nothing more or less than a conscious process of intimidation by which all men keep all women in a state of fear. By contextualizing rape in these ways, Brownmiller offered readers a framework for naming sexual violence as a mechanism of patriarchy and for challenging the practices and institutions that supported male sexual violence against women. Against our will, in other words, became a tool of mass consciousness raising and women's resistance. The book quickly became a touchstone for how Americans thought and still think about sexual violence. Importantly, Susan Brammiller framed Against Our Will as a work of historical scholarship. She traced the importance of rape from the prehistoric era when men discovered that sexual violence could be used to enforce women's subordination to Brammiller's present. For Brammiller, historicizing rape was vital to combating it, or, as she put it, accepting the history of rape is the first step toward denying rape a future. At a moment when Me Too and Time's Up have brought about yet another national reckoning with sexual violence and male power, Brown Miller's book, its legacy, and the context that produced the anti-rape movement of the 1970s demand re-examination. The questions she raised about how sexual violence becomes institutionalized and perpetrated are as urgent now as they were over four decades ago. At the same time, new modes of thinking are needed to analyze and challenge what we now call rape culture. I'm Lauren Gutterman. And I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to Sexing History. In the decades after World War II, few people openly acknowledged that women could be raped by their friends, family members, boyfriends, or spouses. Feminists had not yet coined the term date rape. And every state in the union had a marital rape exception that prevented husbands from being held criminally responsible for raping their wives. Judges, lawyers, and police routinely dismissed and degraded women who reported being raped. They questioned these women about their sexual histories, the clothes they were wearing at the time of their attack, and their reasons for being alone with their attackers. Here's a clip from an NBC Evening News report from 1974. Which was worse for you? Being raped or what happened afterwards? What happened afterwards? Yeah. I just immediately come back to that sergeant asking me if I liked it. Mm. Oh, no. And that face, yeah, like, and screaming and yelling at me and throwing the Bible at me and asking me, you know, why is it you couldn't throw off a 189-pound man? In the courtroom, the girl was questioned by the district attorney. Then the public defender tried to refute her story. The judge kept telling the girl that she had to tell everything. So, in a small voice, she did about how she was grabbed only a few feet away from her apartment, about how she was too frightened to scream, and about what the defendant, who stood nearby in the courtroom, did to her. After a first hearing, a trial date is set, and the girl, like other victims of rape, will have to tell her story again and again. Psychiatrists also said that women secretly wanted to be raped, and they often accused rape victims of inviting their assaults. 
many Americans readily believed that women who accused men of rape were lying, either to cover up consensual relationships or to get back at their boyfriends. Here's Maxine Madler, who was a district attorney in San Francisco in the early 1970s. I do think that the victim in a rape case often does feel like she is the defendant instead of the defendant himself. One of the reasons for this is that the law historically has allowed the woman to be examined, sometimes in great detail, as to her prior sexual, psychological, and social history. Now, there are not any other crimes where such an examination is generally allowed, whereas in the rape prosecution, the woman is almost considered to be untruthful and from the start and must prove her truthfulness by her testimony. In a charge of rape, the judge is required under the law to instruct the jury that this is an easy charge to bring and hard to disprove even if the defendant is innocent. And therefore, he instructs the jurors to regard the victim's testimony with caution. It's almost like saying, be careful of what she's saying. She may not be telling the truth because this is a rape case. Now, this does not occur in any other type of crime. American racism produced a devastating exception to the widespread disbelief of women who reported being raped. When white women accused black men of sexual assault, local police forces and white community members often quickly retaliated. Racist stereotypes likewise made black women particularly vulnerable to assault and less likely to receive sympathy or justice from police or attorneys. Faced with this pervasive opposition, few women at the time pressed charges against their attackers. It was against these oppressive contexts that Susan Brammiller came to write Against Our Will. Brammiller published Against Our Will in the midst of a capacious conversation among feminists about the politics of sexual violence. And she wrote her opus in the wake of widespread organizing by women of color who had long identified sexual violence as integral to maintaining white supremacy. Bram Miller, like other second wave feminists, believed that she was among the first cohort to collectively organize against rape. Few popular publications had chronicled women's long-standing activism against sexual violence. White feminists had rarely heard about or even remembered black women's important battles against sexual violence and white supremacy during the civil rights era. Instead, second wave feminists drew from their immediate and collective experiences to think systemically about sexual violence. Their perspective on rape emerged from their commitment to examining and politicizing aspects of women's everyday experiences that had previously seemed normal, natural, and apolitical. In small consciousness raising groups, women discussed once shameful topics. They explored the violence and disrespect that they had encountered from boyfriends and husbands and family members. They thought about the reasons they were dissatisfied with many heterosexual experiences. They also talked about the daily sexual aggression they encountered on the streets and in the workplace, from catcalls to unwanted touching to indecent exposure. And feminists began to recognize that these experiences were not individual or isolated, but part of pervasive and broader cultural patterns. The 1972 documentary, Nobody's Victim, showed the prevalence of these experiences. I'm not gonna hurt you, don't be unfriendly. If someone bothers Come you in a public now, place, ignore him. 
If he persists, tell him to leave you alone and tell him in a good, loud voice. If you show anger, he'll probably stop bothering you. If this doesn't work, walk toward other people and away from places where you might get cornered. If you have to walk alone at night, stay out in the open near light and people. Avoid areas where assailants might hide, like shrubbery, dark doorways, and between parked cars. If someone harasses you from a moving car, simply turn and walk the other way. If the person is persistent or obscene, write down the license number and report it to the police. Women also began to reckon with sexual violence in the pages of feminist publications. Feminist newspapers published a series of path-setting articles in the early 1970s in which women analyzed their sexual assaults alongside their treatment from police, medical providers, and their partners. They revealed the traumatic long-term consequences that sexual assault had on many aspects of their lives. Feminist authors such as Barbara Meerhoff, Pamela Kieran, and Susan Griffin contributed to this burgeoning conversation. They framed rape as a learned behavior that maintained gender inequality by terrorizing women into subordination. These authors also drew attention to their pervasive messages that told women it was their job to anticipate and adapt to men's sexually predatory behavior. Such insights circulated widely among feminist activists and would later appear in Brown Miller's book. By the time Against Our Will came out in 1975, Susan Brammiller was a well-established journalist and a member of the New York Radical Feminists. Members of the group introduced Brammiller to feminist writing about rape, and they shared their own experiences of sexual assault with her. Brammiller, who had previously subscribed to mainstream ideas about rape victims as weak, if not mentally ill, recalled these conversations as transformative. I was in a uh, tremendously wonderful consciousness-raising group and it was uh, in Greenwich Village. And we met every week to do consciousness raising. At one meeting, one of our members, Diane Carruthers, came in late and threw down a copy of uh, It Ain't Me Babe, which was a, uh, at that time, an alternate publication from uh, California. What they ran was a transcript by a young woman who'd uh, uh, survived a hitchhike rape. And she called uh, the Women's Liberation Center in Berkeley and said, and, and it was crying. And they said, well, we would like uh, you to uh, tell us about it and we'll print your transcript. And that's what they did. They printed a transcript. So there is Diane Crothers who, you know, saw the uh, transcript in It Ain't Me, Babe, and came to our meeting, threw the paper down, and said, uh, this is our next issue. And uh, it was always so typical of me. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> she said, I'm talking about rape. And I said, you're saying that rape is a political crime against women? Uh, so it, then the other women in the consciousness raising group started to talk. So... Um, we had a uh, speak out on rape, and it, to my astonishment, there were about 15, 20 women who were willing to speak out about their rape and uh, how the police had been so uh, 
the police had been so scoffing. They had been so scoffing about Sarah Pines. I mean, she said, and I'll never forget it, but she said, oh, come on, the cops said, oh, come on, who'd want to rape a nice girl like you? So it was revelation to me and to everybody else in that room. The Speak Out and subsequent conference on sexual violence, organized by New York radical feminists, was transformative. At both the conference and the Speak Out, women shared their stories of sexual assault by strangers, friends, boyfriends, and authority figures, as well as traumatizing interactions with psychiatrists, police officers, lawyers, and family members. These events led attendees to collectively redefine what rape meant. The Speak Out and Conference underlined how feminists were redefining rape as a patriarchal tool, as a form of social control, and as a collective act of violence that kept women subordinated. New York radical feminists began using the slogan, Rape is a Political Crime Against Women. Here are members of New York radical feminists being interviewed in 1971. On your leaflet, you say that rape is a political crime against women. I think that most people at this time would think of rape as a deviant act committed by um, a crazy person against an innocent victim. I think the victim is usually assumed to be innocent, but we can get into what you said later. Why do you think of rape as a political crime? Okay. Um, I don't think... Um, that rape is uh, the act of the crazy act of some crazy deviant. Just like the war in Vietnam is not um, some crazy thing, but is part of a system uh, and expresses that system in its most um, at its most rapacious and its most disgusting. Rape uh, is the same type of thing in the sense that it expresses the political relationships of power between men and women in our society, and the fact that it is men who rape women is an expression of who holds the power in our society. And that's why it's a political crime as well as a moral and human crime. Even as Brown Miller and the New York radical feminists were organizing anti-rape activism in New York City, a broader feminist anti-rape movement was taking hold across the country. In the early 1970s, feminists formed anti-rape consciousness raising groups, counseling collectives, crisis centers, and rape hotlines in cities including Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. By the mid-1970s, feminist lawyers had begun arguing that rape laws were based on fundamental misconceptions of rape victims as liars and rape perpetrators as sociopaths. They began working to reform the legal system to better support survivors and prosecute offenders. This activism, and the broader discussion from which it emerged, set the stage for the success of Against Our Will. Following the New York radical feminists' anti-rape actions in 1971, Brownmiller decided to write a broader history of rape. As a successful journalist and author, she easily secured a book contract from Simon & Schuster. She spent the next four years writing and researching against our will at the New York Public Library. In our interview with her, Susan Brownmiller described the process of uncovering the archives of sexual violence. But the main thing about the library was that uh, they had so much archival material on rape, but it was not uh, under their Dewey Decimal System. It was not filed uh, 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 as rape. They didn't. That was not part of the Dewey Decimal System then. Uh, but the librarians knew where I could find things. 
uh, and they became extremely helpful. You know, I, I'd say, well, I'd like to find out was there rape in World War One, and uh, a librarian would say, yes, uh, look up under World WWW World War One. Um, I don't know if it was WWW, but it was in their Dewey Decimal System. It was World War One atrocities. That's where you'll find rape. And indeed, when I looked at World War I atrocities, there was an extraordinary amount of material on rape. The publication of Brown Miller's book and its release was a major media event. Four national magazines serialized excerpts of Against Our Will. Hundreds of newspaper articles spotlighted Brown Miller's argument. And Brown Miller herself appeared at public venues across the country and on television and radio talk shows as part of a nationwide publicity tour. In her media appearances, Brown Miller repeatedly underlined her thesis. Rape has a history, and its meaning and practice have changed over time. In tracing how the meaning and practice of rape had changed over time, Brown Miller also inventoried the various social and political functions that rape has served as an instrument of war, a means of subordinating marginalized populations, and a form of male bonding and camaraderie. Rape, Brown Miller showed, was not unusual or socially abnormal. It was rather a central component of oppression and domination, and an integral part of human history. Brown Miller invited readers to see sexual violence as part of what they already understood to be political, even as she showed how intimate forms of sexual violence also had political and global implications. Brown Miller also reframed the very terms Americans used to think about what constituted rape. She rejected the idea that violence or physical coercion was a necessary component of sexual assault. Instead, all that was needed was an imbalance of power. Male therapists, community leaders, sports players, celebrities, and others with money, fame, power and social standing, she argued, could use their influence and authority to coerce women into sexual acts without the threat of physical harm being present. Against Our Will showed that rape produced and sustained the long-standing and profound power imbalances between men and women. For readers and commentators who encountered feminist analyses of rape through Against Our Will, it was not the anti-rape movement as a whole, but Brown Miller herself who made rape visible as a political act and a mechanism of women's subordination. From the beginning, media outlets portrayed Brown Miller as a singularly important thinker. The Chicago Tribune declared, Against Our Will offers an entire world view, one that no one has presented before. Her book skyrocketed to popularity, the New York Times put Against Our Will on its list of the best books of 1975. After the Book of the Month Club made Against Our Will its selection for November of that year, Brown Miller's ideas circulated well beyond the feminist movement and into the homes of women across the United States. In 1976, Time magazine named Brown Miller one of its Women of the Year. It was on the issue of race, however, that Brown Miller's work faced the most sustained criticism. Brown Miller was committed to elevating women's voices and to dignifying their experiences and stories. Because she understood women as a uniformly oppressed group, and because she understood all men to be oppressors, Brown Miller minimized the importance of race and denied that sexual violence also oppressed men of color. Here's a clip 
from our recent interview with Susan Brammiller. Then, of course, when I uh, went on the college lecture circuit, I ran into something that I uh, talked about a lot in my book, about how left-wingers and um, so-called progressives uh, didn't believe uh, that rape was a political crime against women. They uh, believed that uh, uh, the Communist Party in particular always wrote rape in the quotation marks, that rape was a... Um, white woman falsely accusing a black man. Now, I dealt with this at length in Against Our Will. Uh, but for uh, people, when I was uh, on the uh, lecture circuit for two years, uh, there were people for whom that was still the relevant point, that uh, white women falsely accuse uh, black men and black men are lynched for that, which is a terrible exaggeration. Bram Miller came to this analysis, despite a consistent commitment to the civil rights movement. In the 1960s, Bram Miller covered the civil rights movement as a journalist. She joined the Congress of Racial Equality, and she registered black voters in Mississippi during the Freedom Summer. Activists and historians taught Bram Miller that rape allegations against black men worked to uphold white supremacy by justifying their criminalization incarceration, and murder. None of these experiences impacted her conclusions. In her attempt to expose the ubiquity of rape and the pervasive silencing of all women by all men, Brown Miller rejected these insights. She believed the patriarchy crossed racial boundaries and that white and black men alike used rape as an act of terror against women of all races. For these reasons, Brown Miller insisted that it was a mistake to discount white women's rape accusations against black men. She wanted to show how men, whatever their race or political sympathies, participated in a system that silenced women. But Brown Miller went much further than asking for a reconsideration of women's experiences with sexual violence. She argued that the American left was mistaken in making black men falsely accused of rape the central symbols of American racial injustice. To make this point, Brown Miller's book revisited famed cases such as the falsely accused Scottsboro Nine from the 1930s and the murder of Emmett Till in 1955. And she even perpetuated the myth of the black male rapist. Here's Brown Miller being interviewed in the 1970s. And also in increasing numbers, I'll say it, white women are raped by black men as part and parcel of the hostility between the races today. This troubling framing is most apparent in Brown Miller's discussion of the brutal murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955 by J.W. Milam and his half-brother Roy Bryant. Milam and Bryant abducted and lynched Till after he supposedly wolf-whistled at Roy Bryant's wife Carolyn. An all-white, all-male jury failed to convict the two men who publicly admitted to their crime in the pages of Look magazine only a few months later. Brown Miller was unconvinced by this clear case of injustice, and she wrote that what Till had allegedly done was a deliberate insult just short of physical assault. She implied that Till and his murderers, because they were all men, shared an equal position of power over Carolyn Bryant. Brown Miller even conceded to feeling a fleeting 
but murderous rage herself when men whistled at or propositioned her on the street, whatever their race. Many readers were justifiably critical of Bram Miller's depiction of race and rape. Author Angela Davis was among Bram Miller's most passionate and outspoken critics. In Women, Race, and Class, Davis wrote, It cannot be denied that Bram Miller's book is a pioneering scholarly contribution to the contemporary literature on rape, yet many of her arguments are unfortunately pervaded with racist ideas. Davis continued, Bram Miller's provocative distortion of such historical cases as the Scottsboro Nine and Emmett Till are designed to dissipate any sympathy for black men who are victims of fraudulent rape charges. As for Emmett Till, she clearly invites us to infer that if this 14-year-old boy had not been shot in the head and dumped into the Tallahatchie River after he whistled at one white woman, he would probably have succeeded in raping another white woman. When we interviewed Brown Miller earlier this year, we invited her to discuss whether her thinking on race and rape had changed since she published Against Our Will 45 years ago. Brown Miller stood by her analysis and insisted that she had been unfairly attacked. Well, I uh, developed uh, strong enemies, and uh, none stronger than um, Angela Davis. I, I feel like she's the terrier who keeps nipping at my ankles. Uh, she uh, was a communist. It's okay. She was a communist. Uh, and she bought the, uh, the, the old left uh, theories that uh, rape is political only when uh, uh, a white woman falsely accuses a black man. Yeah. She started by attacking uh, Shalama Firestone and me uh, for uh, not paying sufficient evidence to uh, the role that white women play that leads up to a uh, you know, a black man's getting uh, arrested or lynched. And uh, she's never let go of that uh, to this day. Um, but she was a very harmful uh, to me. Against Our Will leaves us with an uneven, albeit powerful legacy. The book has obvious limitations including Bram Miller's blindness to racial dynamics, her near erasure of same-sex sexual violence, and her inability to grasp the ways that women too have been perpetrators of sexual assault. But even deeply flawed social commentary can help us understand our past and appreciate its political legacy. Bram Miller helped a mass audience think differently about what rape is and how rape works within American culture. Against Our Will, and the broader anti-rape movement of which it was a part, also produced real changes in the ways that police, lawyers, and judges responded to rape accusations and treated survivors. It transformed how many of us still talk about rape and respond to sexual violence and revelations about it. In the decades since Brown Miller's book was published, new voices and new analyses have built upon her work and brought intersectional questions of race, gender, and same-sex sexuality to the fore. Today, activists against sexual violence and harassment are much more attuned to the vulnerability of women of color. 
the victimization of men and boys, and the targeting of transgender women. Informed by the prison abolition movement, critiques of mass incarceration, and ongoing police violence against people of color, many of those struggling against sexual violence today are more critical of the criminal justice system, even as they weave in analyses drawn from the anti-rape movement of the 1970s. Still, at a moment when two Supreme Court justices and the President of the United States have had multiple sexual assault and misconduct allegations leveled against them, Brownmiller's work remains painfully relevant. On a daily basis, news headlines confirm many of her insights about power, systemic abuse, and the widespread discounting of women's voices. It still takes multiple accusations against a single powerful perpetrator for sexual assault charges to be deemed credible. We need only think of Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, and Donald Trump to see this dynamic play out. These renowned cases are of course the tip of a terrible iceberg in which women, men, trans and non-binary people continue to confront sexual assault and harassment in the workplace, in the streets, and in their own homes. That these allegations against some of the most powerful members of society can be spoken at all, that acts of sexual violence can be named as such, that assault and harassment inspire rage and social activism also demonstrate the entrenched and powerful legacy of the anti-rape movement in the 1970s and of Brown Miller's book. Activists today, from Tarana Burke to Chanel Miller, are part of an ongoing commitment to challenging sexual violence and what we now term toxic masculinity. Brown Miller's book, of course, did not bring about an end to sexual violence as she had hoped. But by making the gender politics of rape legible, against our will shaped activism against sexual violence in enduring ways. Brown Miller's work is still cited regularly in media coverage of the Me Too movement, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and the frequency of rape on college campuses. Her analysis of rape as an outcome and means of enforcing gender inequality is crucial to analyses of sexual violence to this day. In the end, Brown Miller wanted us to understand that sexual violence profoundly impacts all our lives. Far from individualistic and idiosyncratic, sexual violence, she showed, is part of a broader edifice of how power works. We have yet to fully reckon with this realization. Whether women know it or not, they gear their laws under the fear of rape. In other words, you send your children to certain schools. Why? You take the car into the center of city. Why? Rather than use the subway. You take night classes at a certain college rather than at another college. Or you don't take night classes at all. You go to school during the day. All of these things, the way women, women dress, have to do with the way they lead their lives in fear of rape. And all women do. Sexing History is written and produced by Gillian Frank and me, Lauren Gutterman. Our senior producer is Sunil Lee Ganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producers are Chris Babbitts, Isabel Mikado, and Mallory Zemanski. Our intern is Julian Harbaugh. Thank you to Susan Brammiller for sharing her story with us. We are indebted to scholarship by Catherine Jacquet and Danielle McGuire, which informed this episode. To learn more about their research, and to see our liner notes for this episode, 
and all our previous episodes, please visit our website at www.sexinghistory.com. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation, created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler. The foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. We are also grateful for the support of the University of Delaware College of Arts and Sciences program for undergraduate summer research. Sexing History is also supported by funding from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. Sexing History is grateful for a grant from the Program in American Studies in the Americas Center, Centro de las Americas, the University of Virginia. The Americas Center promotes the interdisciplinary study of the arts, cultures, histories, and societies of the Americas. If you're enjoying our show, you can help new listeners find us. Please review us on Apple Music and share links to our episodes on social media. To stay up to date on all things sexing history, or to send us a note, visit us on our website, www.sexinghistory.com. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening.